Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Welcome to another Word in Your Ear, where we're once more gathered together by the miracle of technology to discuss about a book about music with its author. Uh, we're joined by Justin Quirk. Hello, Justin. Where Hello, do we... Hello, Mark. Great to see you. Where do we find you, Justin? I'm in. Uh, I'm between Kingston and Surbiton. I'm in uh, Good Life territory. Oh, yeah. River in, uh, in Zone 6. Oh, very nice, very nice. And we're and, very thrilled that you you you've been training to for marathons by listening to our podcasts. Well, yeah, this is this the first is, uh, stage, surely, isn't it? Particularly because when you get up, because I can't listen to music when I'm running, and when you get into the sort of the upper reaches of marathon training, you're out there for hours at a time. So uh, what you need is a sort of steady feed of highest quality audio content. <laughs> <laughs> And failing that, you can get a word in your ear. Yeah. Well, failing that. Uh, <laughs> so I think yeah, I've worked my way through pretty much every single back episode of your uh, your outlet. So I possibly know them oh, better amazing. than you guys. So, I'm, I'm sure, sure you, you do. do. Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, the, so let's hope in the in the next half hour or so we can add to that. Uh, Justin's book is called Nothing But a Good Time. Uh, and it's the spectacular rise and fall of glam metal, uh, which, for the benefit of anybody who needs bringing up to speed, is big hair, massive amplifiers, drugs, alcohol, piles of money, and life-threatening pyrotechnics. So what's to dislike possibly about that? So, Justin, the usual first question we ask on a word in your ear, because it helps us give us a, get a kind of sighting shot on people's age and background and so forth. Can you remember the record-playing equipment in your house when you were a child? Uh, yes, I can remember it very clearly. It would have been a, I'm guessing, sort of Taiwanese-made, what would have been called a music centre. Oh, right, of course. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, sort of early 80s, so it would have been some brand like Matsui or something like that, not separate, um, a sort of moulded all-in-one plastic thing with a very cheap turntable on top and a sort of built-in kind of wooden cabinet on wheels for the... Uh, the uh, parental LP collection underneath. Can you remember what the parental what, LP what, collection was? 
Yeah, I, mean, I was very, very lucky. I mean, because my my mum grew up in Twickenham, so she was sort of very hip to the whole sort of eel pie island oh, uh, sort of Twickenham scene. So my mum had a um, far more tasteful sort of musical adolescence than I did. So when I was listening to sort of dreadful old rock like Motley Crue and Poison, at a similar age, my mum was seeing, you know... Yardbirds. Yardbirds, Longdorf yeah. Three, yeah. Uh, Blues Breakers. Um, saw them all sort of very early on at Eelpa Island. Um, and then there's a big Irish contingent to my family. So it was sort of a combination of what you'd call sort of 60s beat music, uh, Simon and Garfunkel, who were the mum's absolute favourite, and then lots of like the Dubliners, the Furies, right. um, sort of trad Irish stuff. And then things that I think were probably very sort of early 80s, like the uh, the Lark Rise to Candleford sound. Oh, right. That sort of... Um, sort of Slightly spooky end of English folk music, so it was quite a uh, quite a broad church. Brilliant! So it, uh, it was obviously with that background that you were going to develop a fascination <laughs> with, with um, Cinderella. There's <laughs> clear. Wasp. So the where does you movie. where does your journey with glam metal begin? Your personal journey, and how did it lead to this book? Well, it's probably around I'd say about the age of eleven or twelve. So I, mean, I was I was very into music from as long as I can remember. I mean, this sort of sounds like something from a dreadful biopic but literally some of my earliest memories is being in our flat in Twickenham in about 1980-81 you know arranging the Tupperware around the TV when Top of the Pops is on and drumming along to it and I think my earliest childhood memory is seeing the video for The Wall which I can date to December 1979 so it'd have been about three and a half very, very clearly the Gerald Scarf thing so I was sort of interested in music already and then about 1987 I'd have turned about 11. And what I didn't realise at the time was, so I started playing the guitar that year. So immediately you're into a sort of slightly different world of, you know, buying guitar magazines, you're seeing a lot of these acts who aren't getting covered in smash hits or, you know, you're not seeing them on capital radio. But 1987, as I now realise, and it features very heavily in the book, is kind of the Annas Mirabilis of this stuff. You know, it's, it's your very tight sort of period where, Def Leppard's Hysteria, which is really kind of, that's like the benchmark album for this. That comes out. You have Permanent Vacation by Aerosmith, which is their sort of big comeback. Uh, a couple of big Bon Jovi hits. The second Poison album, which is huge. I mean, really, all this stuff just comes in a bit of a surge. And honestly, I, mean, I, I was wet cement for this stuff. I mean, I was, you know, <laughs> sort of bored male, 11 years old, living in a sort of dreary, comfortable part of suburbia. Obviously, what you want is rebellious music. But in quite a sort of safe, rebellious way. And and, uh, the first Guns N' Roses album also comes out at that point. So really, in kind of a 12-month period, I'm just sort of fire-hosed with this stuff. And, you know, I think there's a certain kind of music fan, usually male, usually adolescent, where you like things because other people don't like them. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not in common currency. You like them because nobody at your school... You know, I went to a sort of fairly, you know fairly lively comprehensive on the age of Hamworth where clearly nobody else was into this stuff so it all just uh I was yes I was ripe for it really and then just went headlong got a job in a guitar shop so I was around this stuff all the time and and one of the sort of points I make in the book I didn't really appreciate until I went back was that this stuff was much bigger than you remember it being it did the thing that heavy metal often does which is it's cultivated a sort of renegade outsider aspect and yet you look back like it wasn't it was huge it was in the top 10 they were selling out arenas they were selling out stadiums and i would imagine 
yeah, this is sort of the period when you're working on Q, I guess. And I would suspect any time you featured these magaz- these bands, they probably shifted a decent number of copies for you because they were quite, they weren't difficult to get into. You know, right. it wasn't like trying to get into Napalm Death or White no, 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 or something. No. You know, it was... Um, I don't know if we ever put anything on the cover. Probably wouldn't have done. It's, uh, yeah. I mean, Bino, I mean, Kerrang! was going absolutely bambusters at that yeah, point. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. You know, that, and again, not just Kerrang, but some, you know, Kerrang, Metal Hammer, Raw. I mean, it was sustaining. There was a big ecosystem around this stuff. Right. So now a lot of these groups you, you've mentioned, I would probably naturally identify as kind of hard rock or metal or whatever. Yeah. Whereas this, you're talking about glam metal. So where does the glam come from? Hmm. It's a, a good question. It's not, I suppose it's important to say, it's not glam in terms of, 70s British glam and I sort of delineate those two things quite clearly in the introduction you obviously have 70s glam rock which everyone is familiar with over here what's interesting is that never really lands in America no you know, even people that we think of as being the absolute you know gold standard and stuff yeah you know, your Mark Bolands your Bowies commercially at that point they're not a huge deal in America um but presumably, it's the Alice Coopers and the and the Kisses who were yes. influenced by the British glam metal that can yeah, absorb and, all that, and that must have been the kind of source material for glam glam metal. Yeah, and and those American ones, they, I think, what probably hobbled people like Bolan and Bowie at the time to a large degree in America was those American audiences were not comfortable with any sort of real androgyny. I think no. androgyny particularly yeah. really really switches off American audiences. Kiss, particularly, and Alice Cooper effectively kind of sand the corners off it. And I think what they realise is you can keep the spectacle and you can keep the theatricality and people will go for that. There's no androgyny about Kiss or Alice Cooper. You know, right. it's very, I mean, Kiss, I mean, Kiss are a pretty horrible band in many respects. I mean, it's real meat and potato stuff, but <laughs> they sort of transmute it into something different. And... They're really, KISS particularly, are the real sort of lodestar for, you know, kids that see them when they're 14 are the ones who 10 years later will form these bands. Right, right. So they see them as kind of cartoon characters, don't they? Very yeah. early on. And and I think, I mean, KISS particularly, I mean, you can almost, I mean, I don't sort of want to overstress the link, but you can almost draw a link from like KISS to Donald Trump. The... You definitely can. <laughs> yes, I don't think there's any doubt about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And I wanted to talk about this because one of the things you mentioned is the is the importance of kind of professional wrestling and all that kind of well, that, madness, that struck me as which really is very closely related to Donald Trump world, isn't it? Hugely. I mean, but then also, it's all, to sort of step back a bit, I mean, the, the Trump thing is, you know, you look at Kiss and you're like, as much as they are a band, they are a branding exercise and a kind of pyramid selling scheme. You can sort of see the KISS logo on anything in the way that Trump could be a hotel or a state yeah. or, you know, the decline of Western democracy. Whatever he wants to put his name on, KISS can do that just as well. And um, part of me is kind of surprised that Gene Simmons never went into politics. Yes. Yeah. He's not, I suppose the truth is he's not shameless enough, really. That's, that, that could be what it is. Yeah, he's sort of a, sort of a modicum of civilization. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, so talking about further connections with the UK, you know, you talk about the the glam thing, which didn't happen there, but it was influential. You talk a lot, uh, talk about Ozzy Osbourne is a really key figure in all this. How, how does that work? Yeah, he's a big connection between seventies rock, isn't he, and, and kind of eighties 
I, I think you're right. I think Aussie yeah. more than anyone is the one that bridges that gap because you heavy metal it around about 1980s in a bit of a sort of doldrum it's very stodgy there's kind of a new wave of british heavy metal has come through here so that's like your iron maiden early iron maiden saxon um groom reaper you know it's very very meat and potato stuff um there's sort of an the american bands are all kind of running out of steam there's various iterations still going sort of rainbow things in the deep purple family but what it needs is someone to kind of join the two and ozzy osbourne has really run out of steam kind of post black sabbath I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a huge defender of ozzy and black sabbath i mean they're really really important bands but he's running you know he's running on fumes by 1979 so and he kind of relocates to america he gets a much younger band and particularly Randy Rhodes, who's his guitarist, and they form this incredible partnership where he essentially surrounds himself with much younger musicians, and his sound goes through this kind of step change overnight. It becomes <clears throat> much tighter. All the kind of bass goes out of it. It's much more compressed. It's very, very LA-sounding. Um, right. And he does this succession of three albums, does um, Blizzard of Oz, Diary of a Madman, great titles and uh yeah. bark at the moon bark at the moon where he's turned into the least convincing werewolf you've ever seen <laughs> by, uh, by the same guy who did all the special effects for a uh, night um american werewolf in london um, right but he has this incredible relationship randy rhodes is this is it's very much like the relationship between say mick ronson and david bowie you know they have this real yeah, almost yeah. kind of telepathic connection and Randy Rhodes just supercharges him. He completely reinvents him musically. They do these three phenomenal records, two phenomenal records. And then there's this appalling ending to it when they're on oh, tour. Oh, it's oh. awful story, yeah. It's the single worst rock and roll story ever. Yeah. It's appalling. I mean, for anyone who doesn't know, the very short version is they're on tour and they're parked up in the tour buses on the way to a gig in Orange County. And for reasons which are not entirely clear, Rhodes is a very nervous flyer and a local pilot takes him up in a microlight plane to sort of circle around the airfield and tries buzzing the tour bus, sort of coming in very low while everyone's asleep, misjudges it completely, um, and they just explode in this fireball. So none of the rest of the band are killed, but Randy Rhodes is killed instantly. The pilot's killed. I think another passenger is. It's just, and you know, he's 24, I think, at this yeah. point. That's this whole career ahead of him. This astonishing potential. He's really, he's one of those few people in music you never hear a bad story about. He was just renowned as being one of the good guys, didn't drink, didn't smoke, didn't do drugs. You know, he was just a really beautiful sort of character. And Ozzy, to some degree, never really gets over it. I think in his Tim interview now, it clearly really knocked him off balance very, very badly. But it's, um, yeah, but, but, Back towards it, I mean, that's really the importance of him. He's the one that kind of bridges those two worlds and right. I think really sets the template for what that sound is going to be for the next seven or eight years. So that's the sound. Now, the other, the glare, the part of the glam is the visuals, isn't it? Yes. Now, now here they're immensely fortunate because MTV has is, is come along round about this time, isn't it? Is it that, does that fit in with it? It, I mean, without MTV, really, none of this could have happened. Um, you have, I mean, MTV is going in a very minor 
uh, sort of local capacity, I think for about 81, 82, around about the end of 82, there's a court ruling that means it can be beamed out into a wider relay system. Essentially, it goes nationwide at that yeah, point. Yeah. And essentially, at that point, a line is drawn in the sand between bands who realise that the spoils of the 80s will go to the ones who can grab that visual dimension the ones who can't are going to fall by the wayside. So, you know, you have huge bands from the 70s, like Supertramp are a really good example. You know, Supertramp are still putting out big records in the early 80s, but they don't work visually. No, they don't. No. I mean, that's putting it I down. Mean, you but make a point work. that Saxon don't work, I would do, because the idea that Biff I mean, Byford is kind of, you know, <laughs> is from Barnsley, and he's, he's, he's doing these kind of northern club comedian routines on stage, you know, and they're completely unprepossessing. I mean, I mean, they, they just don't work in a video world, do they? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just not going to work. But then, conversely, you have bands like, they're not glam, but a band like, say, ZZ Top, who yeah, have yeah. along for sort of 10 years beforehand, essentially making, I mean, I'm, again, I'm a big defender of ZZ Top, but yeah. they had effectively made the same record for 10 years from sort of Big L.O. onwards, and they reboot themselves visually. So yeah, definitely. you have this sort of line in the sand where, and again, MTV gets onto this very, very early on, and they realise how popular this stuff is, because this isn't, glam metal, like, isn't particularly music for trendy people on the coasts. You know, there's a lot of people in Pennsylvania who like this stuff, Indiana, all these, they're right, yeah. all these places. And Def Leppard really are, again, the ones that glom onto this very, very early on. Yeah, yeah. Videos yeah. With yeah. And again, just for context, in 1983, the only record getting played more on MTV than Photograph by Def Leppard is Billie, is a, Billie Jean by Michael Jackson. Yeah, they yeah. are on that level in terms of the new medium. That's who they're competing with, and yeah. you know they are. They grab that, I think, better than anyone. You know, they all dress the same. They have this very cartoonish look. The records are fantastic. Um, and again, I'm going to talk about Def Leppard a lot in the book because they they're sort of the proof of concept for the whole thing. They, Ozzy kind of perfects the sound, but he still looks a bit genuinely crazy and like something from the Henson Preacher Workshop. Def Leppard are the ones who go, look, we're in a, I mean, they're very young. They're 10, yeah, they're 10, 15 years younger than Ozzy. They ally the music, which is basically, it's just nailed on pop music with this very, very sort of video friendly image. And they become much bigger in America than they do over here. And again, they do the thing that always sets British bands apart. They go out and hit the road for three years. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they don't do the Oasis thing of couple of dates in New York, couple in LA. <laughs> That's out. enough of that. that. We're going home. Yeah, if they yeah. don't like us, we're going home in the salt. <laughs> yeah, they you're right, they, you're right they, about they, the, the, the construction of Hysteria, which is fantastic. And it's Mutt Langer, isn't it, who did the record before, yes. pretty yeah, much yeah. killed himself in the, in, the, in the attempt. But you say it's put together like, a, like an electronic recording. It was meant to be a, a kind of metal equivalent, really a thriller. It was that detailed, wasn't it, in the it, way it was constructed and the number of singles. Yeah, there's a book you, I think you mentioned recently on the podcast, David, um, Greg Milner's Perfecting yeah, Sound. Yeah, Perfecting Sound forever, yeah, yeah. That's a brilliant book, but that has a whole chapter on hysteria. Yeah. Really just from a recording process. And yeah. they'd had this awful, awful run of it where, you know, Pyromania, the album from 83, is huge. Um, in the interim, uh, they lose their drummer loses his arm in this horrific <laughs> car crash new year's eve another terrible story yeah oh it's just 
And again, yeah, he's actually wearing a seat belt, which is what severs his arm and he's flung out of the car. They sew yeah. the arm back on. He then loses the arm again. I mean, they're really in a bad way. He has to effectively work with Simmons, the drum company, to build in this equipment. Um, Kerrang! head out there in the depths of winter in... This is in about 1984, I think, when they are really in a bad way. I mean, they've wasted the best part of a year working with Jim Steinman, Meatloaf's producer, who... Which is a brilliant story because he doesn't like the carpet, does he? And he insists that the carpet is torn out and a very expensive new one's put in. And then he has 12-course meals and all that stuff. They fired him, didn't they? Appears to just sit there reading Country Life magazine. (laughs) And sort of not doing a great deal. So when Kerrang! catch up with him in that issue... The whole thing is really in the balance. I mean, they are ploughing through money in the way that only bands in the 80s hold up in residential studios could do in, you know, Holland. They've been out of the country for a long time for tax reasons. They're two years. The ground is kind of moving underneath them. And we're getting on for it's like three years since they've had an album out. Everyone's like, you know, where's where's this going to go? And eventually they get Mutt Langer back on board. And he, I mean, I'm simplifying enormously here, says... Essentially, just give me a demo, record it on these very small Rockman amps that are like 10 or 20 watts, and just give me a clean signal. No effects, no distortion, nothing, just skeletons. And then you can basically bugger off for six months. I will build the record. (laughs) And he essentially pieces it together the way that we would now expect like a hip-hop record or an electronic record to be done, where to the point where rather than them just playing chords, he's recording the individual notes and compositing them together, putting everything into one of these sort of -of state-of-the-art SSL desks, which sort of costs more than a house at this point, and there's two of them in the country and Kate Bush has got the other one. Um, I think Thomas Dolby turns up on it at some point under an assumed name because he's got, you know, the only fair light in the country that isn't in Kate Bush's And so 1987, so midway through 1987, Mutt Langer then calls them back in and essentially plays them back this version of the album. And, and, and he has a compositional credit, I think, on every single yes. track, doesn't he? I know, it's and, fantastic. But we, and again, to be fair, the band boys have been very generous about it because they're like, look, yeah. he was effectively a sixth member. And, you know, that idea of the producer kind of playing the desk like an instrument, it's more like something out of dub or reggae. Or it's, I mean, he's a really yeah. astonishing piece of work. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. But it is, it gives the whole album this very, very sort of odd effect. Where I say in the book, it's like, you know, Magritte's painting of a pipe. You know, you're sort of, you're hearing Def Leppard, but it's not really Def Leppard. And they then have to learn how to reconstruct this music. Yes, and, play and, and yeah. to play it some way. Yes, yeah. no, which yeah. they manage, you know, astonishingly. But it's the album then comes out. First single does nothing. Oh, uh, really? so, yeah. So you can imagine, you know, the. Was this wise? All that time, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I think at this point they're at the stage where they need to sell something like four million copies of this. Just to, to become, cover them. Yeah. Just to get the money back. Yeah, yeah they've had four years just digging a trench. You know, first single really does nothing. And then I think it's the second single which really, really hits big. And then it's just heads down from there. They just go on the road for two years. They're selling out stadiums all across America. I think in the end, so Joe Elliott stated, he said, we want to make Heavy Metal's version of Thriller. And I think in the end they have seven or eight singles yes. out of an eleven yeah. track album. Yeah. yeah, seven deep as they call yeah. it. The, the, yeah. the, the American and it still record holds up brilliantly to this day. Right, right. So, so where do where do Guns and Roses fit in? Or do they fit in, in into this world? They're an interesting case because I think they would dispute. I mean, this is the problem because glam has this slightly pejorative quality to it. Most bands would not consider themselves to have been part of it, you know, and I'm, even though, you know, they clearly are. I think Guns N' Roses kind of sit at a very interesting point in that I think their first album, which comes out in the same year as Hysteria, and again, it comes out, it's not a big deal. You know, the album comes out, it's a very, very small release. No one at Geffen's particularly bothered about it. There's no big campaign behind it. Um what makes it, they get one play very late at night on MTV for the video for Welcome to the Jungle. And, you know, in truth, the switchboards light up and it sort of never goes back. But they are of a very different complexion, I think, to all of their peers in that what you realise from looking at this stuff with a bit of a longer view is, whereas a lot of glam was, you know, it was quite pop, it was quite, had a very mainstream appeal, you know, Bon Jovi were, you know, nice teeth, good hair, they deliberately tooled themselves to be very open to sort of like female audiences in a way that, you know, our dear friend Saxon probably weren't, or yeah. most of them. Um, Guns and Roses are, there is a genuine malevolence about them. There is a real kind of amorality. When I say on the, in the book, you know, it, the album has this kind of quality, like it's been recorded on a bad ley line or something. I mean, there's something really profoundly bleak about it. And, you know, you realise more looking back that they were extremely damaged people. You know, they all come from 
genuinely quite bad backgrounds in different ways. Most of them are intravenous drug users. You know, there's there's a lot of real genuine unpleasantness going on around that. But there's something very real about it that people lock into. And as a result, that album comes out and it renders everything around it kind of cartoonish overnight. You know, you hear that and then you hear poison. You're like, one of these things is clearly more sort of real. You know, it's more impactful. So it just made them all look cartoonish and superficial. Yeah, and, 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 and not in a... Ridiculous, yeah. Yeah, and it's... There just seems to be something sort of like more meaningful and a bit grown up about that Guns N' Roses album. And then I think at that point, that it doesn't kill glam metal off, but I think it sort of gives it a slow puncture. I think <laughs> they, they sort of deliver kind of the death knell in 1991 when they finally do that double release of Use Your Illusion, which yeah. has had so much expectation freighted onto it for the two years. You know, it's been endlessly delayed. There's been bootlegs leaking out. They've done some gigs, but, you know, they've sort of ended a bit badly. And everyone is pinning everything on that album. And it comes out and it's, and, you know, commercially it was a success. But it just wasn't happening. And I, mean, I was 15 when they released it and you wanted it to be, you so wanted it to be a success. And it just wasn't. And you couldn't, I think mean, you started seeing it showing up in charity shops quite soon after. Yeah, yeah, it's always, <laughs> it's always a sign. It's always yeah. a sign. And, and I think, you know, and for an album that, you know, I think sold something in the region of 30 million copies between the two volumes. I mean, it's I mean, it huge, huge. You don't hear it these days. It's, it's just kind of... It, yeah. Probably the thing. classic case of shipped gold return platinum. Return platinum. It very much did so. <laughs> As they say. So when, when you look at the whole the whole world that you cover there, there clearly some bands you have great affection for, either in the past or still now. Are there any of them that you look at and think they were ludicrous then, they're ludicrous now? I mean, you know, Motley Crue or a Poison or whatever. I C mean, Cinderella, you give a bit yes. of a skin to, I think, at one point. <laughs> I mean, there's... Wasp. What's the story with Wasp? Wasp, I would make the case for. I mean, Wasp, they're an interesting one in that Blackie Lawless, and again, you never realised this at the time. I mean, he was absolutely... I mean, he was ancient in, you know, 1986. Yeah. I mean, he was a good 10 years older... Than his peers, you know, the makeup and the hair kind of covers quite a rare things. He was one of the few people who had actually cottoned on to British glam first time around. And he'd been trying to kind of get this thing going in sort of, you know, 1980s in these bands like Orfax Rainbow in New York, who were trying to do a very faithful version of kind of British glam rock. Everyone else in 1980 in New York is listening to like Talking Heads and Blondie and, you know, sort of, very much giving you know what are you playing at him but um yeah wasp i think stand up pretty well i mean there's there's a real b list of british glam bands who nobody is going to make a case for about tiger tales rothschild you know these i mean real right. it's sort of like, imagine like motley crew but from worcester and without the songs <laughs> <Right. And you're, laughs> it doesn't work, work from worcester worcester yeah. at all it, it didn't work. I mean, Def Leppard are kind of the exception of the, the British band that sort of sold Coles back to yeah, Newcastle. Absolutely. That's an interesting point. Is Def Leppard were effectively reconfigured themselves as an American band, didn't yeah. they, really? And they, they and got a lot of stick for it at the time. I mean, there was sound. There's a lot of old articles and things like sounds where... Yes, they wouldn't they, like that. 
really didn't like them. They, you know, they had a, I mean, they did go pretty hard. They had a song on their first album called Hello America. And, you know, <laughs> That's the Dave Clark Five did that kind of thing many years Trying earlier. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there, there was. I think people were, you know, very sniffy about them for being seen to be a bit too try-hard. But you know, you've got to say they they did it. I mean, they, you know, they succeeded. Oh my god, they, they succeeded. So when when you look at that the term that you're covering in your book, you know, the, when's the era of glam metal? When does it start? <laughs> when does it finish? And what brings about its it's end if it's ended i'd say you go it's very very it's tightly bookmarked in a way that most genres aren't i'd say you go from 83 which is um the second motley crew album um shout of the devil uh motley crew 83 i think is probably a starting gun that's the point where i say i say in the book there's things before it that sound like glam and there's things that look like glam but that's the first one that really crystallizes the two together and then I think really you've got to draw a line under it in 1991 with Use Your Illusion, the right. Guns N' Roses album. Um, right. After that, it's, I mean, it's, you couldn't really have plotted this any more beautifully, but it's literally within about 10 days of each other. Yeah, Nirvana turn up. Yeah, it comes yeah, out 10 days after and you can sort of see, you know, there's the fork in the road there. And it's too glib to say, you know, grunge killed off glam metal because, you know, there's still huge stuff coming out in 1992 and, you know, we always we tend to repackage things more neatly with hindsight than they yeah, were in reality. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, I think uh, you'd go eighty-three to ninety-one, and then it's and again, that's been... that's another example of it of the music being incredibly kind of raw and about the real world and it being kind of unvarnished and all that. And it must have just thrown a lot of that glam metal stuff into a kind of comic relief, wasn't it? it was, yeah, I mean, it was really hard. I mean, there's a great interview I read somewhere where. I mean, the, the, the one that always sticks in my mind is seeing uh, Warrant, who are a very, you know, unlamented band. They had a very big hit song called Cherry Pie, which is sort of terrible. It's um, it's sort of what people who really hate glam metal will envisage when they imagine glam metal. And they went on the uh, the Channel 4 show, The Word, you know, the standard sort of Friday mm, night show. Yeah. So you've got your know, sort of audience of kind of British trendies who are, you know, probably more into house music or whatever. It's 1991 and they give out a load of uh, promotional cherry pies to the audience before you can possibly guess. You know where this is. Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) And it's got to be about, I don't think they even make the first chorus before this hail of kind of pastry and stewed fruit starts raining. (laughs) Yeah. Guy in a cowboy hat trying to protect himself from this hail of Mr. Kipling's. And I remember at the time just thinking, <laughs> this is uh, this is kind of a visual metaphor for where things are going to go in the next 12 months. You go know, pelted off stage with your own fruit buns. It's... Did you ever, at the height of your passion for this kind of thing, did you ever... Um... Did you ever dress in the in the in the style of the bands? Uh, no, I mean it was a couple of main reasons. The first one being um, I was just never able to grow my hair long. The hair wouldn't go beyond the collar, um, <laughs> which is a, a sort of major hindrance. The second one being that uh, I went to a very rough school in Hanworth, where I think I would have been kicked to death in about ninety yeah. seconds had I uh, had I turned up at. Uh, Dean Rhodes' finest dress that is uh, wearing a cowboy hat and spurs and the sort of like 
you know, yeah. rock coat. I think I I would not have been long for this world. So, right. uh, so what were the key, the key fashion items that you would have to acquire if you wanted to be, you know, in 1987, the key well, kind it's of It's sort of a visual bag of, and this is what I'm saying, what I think is interesting about the music, even if you hate it, I think what makes it interesting is that, for me, I think it's the final point of white guitar music having a kind of forward momentum. I think it's the point where after this, everything becomes very self-referential and has more of a sense of irony. And oh, no, begins... you made a brilliant point in the book. You think it's an amalgam of 40 years of, of yeah. white guitar music, starting with what, with vaudeville and country and cowboy yeah. blues. And... So what are the other elements in that? All these elements, you know, the kind of, you know, the bits of psychedelia, bits of, you know, what Aerosmith were doing in the 70s, bits of Led Zeppelin. And the fashion does that likewise. You know, it's sort of cowboy boots you know duster yeah. hats you know the sort of like military frock coats of the kind of late 60s yeah yeah yeah, yeah the ripped t-shirts of punk the sort of makeup of kind of new romantics it's it's like a sort of flesh golem that's been kind of stitched together <laughs> from 40 years and and i think what's interesting now is dance music i think is kind of approaching a similar stage at a similar point in its lifespan you know, if you think that glam metal arrived when you were kind of 30 years into guitar music, yeah, well, we're at about that yeah. point, you know, we're sort of 30, 32 years after house music really sort of broke through. And I think we're at a similar point now where if you listen to a lot of sort of EDM, you go, well, this kind of sounds like a weird hybrid of bits of Chicago house, bits of Detroit techno, bits of sort of trance in the 90s, all kind of... I mean, I think the description I use of Guns N' Roses is saying, you know, it's like watching a trash compactor kind of forcing together four decades of this kind of guitar music. And then this block of kind of reeking matter gets sort of spat out the other end of it. And that's, <laughs> which was, you know, you could argue, I think Oasis did something kind of similar, but it was a bit more, you could sort of see the joins a bit more, I think, with Oasis. You know, it was like, we're just referencing this and this. You know, it's like yeah. the 60s, this bit of the 70s. Um, I think this was much more of a, a, a sort of compression of about four decades of material. Right. Do you think uh, the title is uh, Nothing But A Good Time? Was that, is that a conscious thing? Do you think it was a conscious rejection of kind of music or other music becoming rather serious and you know, up itself or whatever. And th this was, we're here for a laugh. We're here. Yeah, you talk, you talk about the kind of Paul Simon and Carly Simon and uh, and Don Henley and, you know, yeah. just putting out a whole lot of, a whole soundtrack now for people who've, who've just got divorced. You know, they're, they're, yeah. they're in their mid-40s. And you suggest that, the, that this is the, the Technicolor counterpoint to the entire I, thing. I think it is. I mean, I'm not saying the book. Constant I mean, I, escape. I've been sort of kicking this theory around for a couple of years that I think, the boomers hitting divorce on mass is one of the great kind of unacknowledged <laughs> engines of pop music in the eighties, you know, from sort of Phil <laughs> Collins, you know, the theme from chess, you know, yeah. like loads of the put Graceland by Paul Simon, a brilliant record, Don Henley, boys of summer. There's a very kind of melancholy undertone to all this. And I was saying the, the glorious thing about glam metal is that it's profoundly juvenile. And I don't mean yeah. this in, in a pejorative sense. I mean, that no, it's, no. it's from the ground up. You know, it's, it is solely occupied with the concerns of your life when you have a part-time job that it is of no consequence if you turn up hungover or drunk. 
you probably don't have a girlfriend, but that's fine, you know, because no one you know does. Um, <laughs> you get drunk very easily, no one's got any money, and you have a sort of generalised ambient rage against all parental authority figures. And as I say, you know, say what you like about, uh, I don't know, Dokken. They weren't yeah. going to start having a conversation with you about their divorce. <laughs> yeah. You know, Blackie Lawless was not going to start talking about, you know, the poignancy of sort of taking his no. son on a road trip when he has his weekend access visits because, you know, <laughs> not like, you know, I love that because like, you don't want to hear that when you're 14. So is there, is there, that's, if we were saying, is there any sign all these years later of any of these groups attend, attempting to, in conventional terms, grow up? Has anybody threatened to say, has John Bon Jovi ever said, now I'd like to be taken seriously? At this point, he's 50 bon, or whatever bon he is. Kind of he, I mean, Bon Jovi and Aerosmith were the two, and you know, obviously Aerosmith have a much longer history, but yeah, yeah. They, they did a very neat kind of switcheroo of basically just getting their heads down for two years in about 1991, you know, very sensibly, and then sort of resurfacing in about 1993 with slightly shorter hair and a sensible black and white photo on the cover. <laughs> <laughs> somewhat political lyrics um and you know all credit to aerosmith now i suspect are bigger than aerosmith ever were you know when they were doing done with mirrors or you know yeah yeah, yeah. No, sure. they, they've really made a go of it well um, a lot of those bands reinvented themselves dude didn't they so yeah, yeah van halen being a really good example you know just yeah. sort of completely re-energized by the whole thing and became yeah. a kind of template for what glam metal was going to sound like you know those instrumental you know uh showboating and uh, yeah you know. and they and you know and again i mean van halen hugely hugely important out, outfit in all this and and again yeah. to they were in this yeah they had they were returning to a 70s band who saw very sensibly which way the wind was blowing in about 1982 and you know it's like i mean their biggest record you know is you know jump van halen 1984 you're putting a record out you have probably the greatest technical guitarist on earth in your band and you start that track with a, with a synth riff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, everybody did. Yeah. yeah. You know, that that's track. That track. If that same riff had been played on a guitar, that would not have been as big. That wouldn't have been a mainstream hit the way it was. No, absolutely. absolutely. No, yeah, they were sensible enough to, um, yeah. to do that. In terms of who else has managed to kind of you know survive the sort of Maoist purge that, that occurred in 1991, there's. There is still a revival scene. You know, you can still go out under normal circumstances and see whatever passes these days for LA Guns or Cinderella or whoever playing. But I say in the conclusion of the book, I think the problem they have is that something changed with the arrival of grunge. I say when things started to have a kind of ironic dimension to them. So the thing with glam metal is that it is ludicrous but it takes itself seriously and what i mean by that is you know motley crude dressed like motley crude because they thought it looked good you know dave lee roth did a star jump off a drum riser because he was silver backing every other male in the arena and it looked great they they were very very sincere ludicrous but sincere after 1991 everything kind of comes in inverted commas yeah and yeah the whole idea of you know everything sort of functions on two levels and it's all a bit more slippery in terms of sort of perception. It's all a bit more mutable. And I think that is what locks certain kinds of music in the past in that, you know, if you saw a band turning up now dressed like 
Yeah. Motley Crue on the cover of Kerrang! in 1983. You would assume that was a joke. Yes, that you would. was um, a stunt for like a Katy Perry video or something. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It couldn't just be taken in one turn. So whereas there are older bands, you know, if a band could emerge now who look and sound like talking heads and they would sound completely modern. You know, a band could look and sound like Blondie and they would sell the B-52s or something and they would sound modern because those bands had a grasp of sort of ironic detachment. Glam didn't. Glam was all surface. It was kind of all flash, you know, <laughs> up in the red. Everything is exactly what it says on the tin. And I think that makes it seem, much as I love those records still, it makes it seem as anachronistic as, you know, if you see a load of, like, a load of greasers or Teddy. It's teddy yeah. Boys. Yeah. It's just true. Teddy Boys is the closest parallel, definitely. Yeah. Well, look, the book is called, as I said, Nothing But A Good Time. The Spectacular Rise and Fall of Glam Metal by Justin Quirk. And it's out now, isn't it? It is out now. It is. It is. And it does it does a remarkable job, as Justin has just done live in, in, in sending us towards this extraordinary area of popular music. Justin, it's been absolutely terrific. That was fantastic. What a salvo. I can't even do it. <laughs> and I'm in the dark anyway. Cheers. Superb. All the very best. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com